This morning, Christians rejoice and celebrate one of the most profound and powerful events in all of human history. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the God-man, Jesus Christ, got up from the dead. Jesus got up from the dead and the world has never been the same since. Jesus' profound and powerful impact on the world is not merely a result of his life. No, in large part, it was a consequence of his resurrection. Sure, Jesus had a large following during his lifetime, but it wasn't until after his resurrection from the grave that word about him began to dramatically expand beyond the places where he walked and talked. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus got up from the dead. Men and women started going and telling others about this thing that had happened. And this morning, as we study Matthew chapter 28, we'll consider again what took place in one of the most profound and powerful events in all of human history. And it is my hope that after reconsidering the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be encouraged to go and tell others about this great thing that has happened. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, uh, you can find Matthew chapter 28 beginning on page 835. 835. And if you're not used to looking at a Bible that often, uh, the chapters are the larger numbers there in the text and the smaller numbers are the verses. And I'll be referring uh, often to chapters and verses. So I hope that that will, that will help you as we look at, at God's Word this morning. Now, as you're turning there, or if you've turned there, uh, let me just remind us of where we are in Matthew's Gospel. Where are we in Matthew's Gospel? We're at the end. We're at the very end. Uh, And even though we are at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we need to remember the beginning. Through 11 studies in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that Matthew was at pains to communicate to his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that the Old Testament pointed forward to. Jesus, he called Matthew a Jewish tax collector, to follow him. As a Jew, Matthew, he would have been well-versed in the Old Testament prophecies and promises of the Messiah, the Savior whom God had promised. As an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew was eminently qualified to write and teach us about Jesus Christ. Matthew's Gospel began with a not-so-subtle hint that Jesus was God's promised and King, Savior of the world. Matthew, through Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1, shows us how Jesus is connected to Abraham and David. Jesus would be the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, that through Jesus, the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus would be the fulfillment of God's promises to David, that he would be the king that would rule over God's people, just as David once did. But this time, he would rule over God's people, not just in one place, but in over the whole globe. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, even tells us the reason that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus was sent to save His people from their sins. And in coming into the world, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that Jesus is God with us. The Gospel of Matthew is therefore all about Jesus victoriously accomplishing that work of salvation to save sinners. However, if we are honest about what took place in the two chapters just before the one we're looking at this morning, 
At first glance, it doesn't appear as though Jesus has victoriously accomplished that work for sinners. It appears that Jesus was in fact defeated by death. As we learned last week from Matthew chapters 26 and 27, Jesus was mocked and beaten and crucified on Friday. His body was claimed by Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph, he treated Jesus' body as a dead body. Not only by wrapping it in a linen cloth, but also by putting his body in a place that dead bodies go, a tomb. Matthew told us that a few of Jesus' disciples were there watching his burial. From the cross to his tomb, they saw his body move into that grave. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb, Matthew told us. Jesus' disciples and followers knew that Jesus was dead. They saw his body wrapped in cloth and laid in that tomb. They even saw it sealed with a large boulder. The stone that sealed Jesus' tomb would have been so massive that several grown men would have had to roll it out of place if it were to be moved by the hands of men. That stone, the wax seal placed around it, and the guards placed at that tomb ensured that no one could get in or out. And this is where we begin our study this morning. We're going to study Matthew 28 in four sections under four headings. And I think there's an outline provided for you there in the bulletin. You could summarize the thrust of this whole passage in three words. What's, what's Matthew chapter 28 trying to communicate? Three words. Go and tell. Go and tell. Here's the flow of this chapter. God sends an angel to go and tell Mary and Mary Magdalene that Jesus has risen from the dead. Then the angel sends the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. Then the risen Savior interrupts the journey of these women as they are on their way to go and tell the disciples that He has risen. Jesus encourages them to continue on their way to go and tell the disciples that He has risen. The Jewish religious leaders tell the tomb's guards to go and tell others that Jesus has not risen. Finally, Matthew's Gospel concludes with Jesus' great and final commission. One last time, Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus instructs His disciples to go and tell the world about Him. That is what this chapter is all about. Going and telling the world that Jesus is the risen and reigning King. So let's take a closer look at this wonderful chapter now. Let's begin with our first point. The angels go and tell. The angels go and tell. And as we think about this, read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 7 with me. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 7. Matthew writes, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, Come, See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. 
And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Matthew 28 opens, and we learn that the Sabbath is past. Jesus died on Friday and was laid in the tomb on Friday. His dead body rested in the tomb on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. For those in the first century, in their sense of time, this would have been considered three days due to the fact that Jesus' body spent some time in the tomb on Friday, and sometime on Saturday, and sometime on Sunday. Matthew also notes that the women who had been sitting opposite the tomb when Jesus was buried made their way toward the tomb uh, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. In fact, all four New Testament Gospels record this detail, that they went to the tomb on the first day of the week. That would be Sunday morning. And when you actually uh, branch out from the Gospels, you read out further in the New Testament, uh, you'll, you'll notice that the first day of the week is often connected with the gatherings, uh, with Christians' worship gatherings. It's actually later called the Lord's Day. And this makes a great deal of sense, given that we as Christians worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. Every Sunday we gather, we are celebrating Easter all over again. Christian, do you realize that every Sunday is Easter Sunday and that we are rejoicing and worshiping the risen Christ because he has been raised as a preview and promise of our hope of one day living in the new heavens and the new earth in a renewed created order with new glorified bodies. Bodies just like his resurrected body. Each Sunday we gather, we are preparing ourselves for life with the risen Christ in the new creation each Sunday. Did you think about that when you got up this morning? I did, but that's in large part because I'm preaching the sermon. But this reality, frankly, has too often slipped my mind. These women who were going to the tomb would never be the same. Who were these women who were approaching the tomb so early on the first day of the week? Well, we actually don't know a whole lot about them, but Matthew's readers probably would have known them. Uh, we, uh, one of the things that Matthew does tell us, one of the significant details that he has given us about these women uh, can be found in chapter 26, verses 55 to 56. And there, Matthew mentions that they had followed Jesus. They had ministered to him. Matthew very clearly casts these women as disciples, as followers of Jesus, and as those who supported him in the ministry. What were these women doing? Going to see the tomb? Well, they weren't going because they believed that it would be empty and open. That wouldn't make any sense. They were going to the tomb because they believed that Jesus' dead body would be found in that tomb. The, the, the Gospel of Mark's resurrection account even makes clear that these women had purchased burial spices so that they might go and anoint him. These women are not coming to this tomb. They're not going to this tomb expecting to meet a resurrected Jesus. They are coming to this tomb expecting to finish properly burying his dead and smelly body. That's what the spices were for, to cover over the stench of his body. Sometime before this sad and dark walk to the tomb, Matthew tells us that a great earthquake has taken place, that the stone has been removed and that a very bright angel has done this. Matthew's reference to this earthquake reminds us of the earthquake that took place uh, in connection with Jesus' death in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. 
It's so appropriate that these two scenes are connected by an earthquake because something earth-shattering happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. Sin and death were defeated. Now, at some level, it's completely unsurprising that an angel would descend from heaven and have a bright appearance like lightning. Angels are servants and messengers of God. Here, this angel serves the Lord by removing the stone. His appearance and actions terrify the guards of the tomb. These guards, they wouldn't have been men who were easily scared or afraid. These are men who are prepared to die for carrying out their commission. But notice in verse 4 that they are scared to death. In the Bible, angels are some of the most frightening creatures to encounter. No one in the Bible meets an angel and kind of just goes on their merry way like nothing's happened. No angels, they strike fear into the hearts of those whom they greet. Not only were the guards scared to death and paralyzed by fear, but these women approach, approaching the tomb, they were scared too. That's why in verse 5 the angel had to say to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. You're seeking the one who is dead. I mentioned earlier that angels were uh, servants and messengers of God. We see that the angels served the Lord by descending from heaven, rolling the stone away. But consider afresh the message that the angel has been sent to deliver. The message that he has been sent to go and tell on God's behalf there in verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. These are some of the sweetest, most beautifully constructed sentences in all of the Bible. So simple, so to the point, so profound. These women had come here to the tomb seeking Jesus to finish properly burying his dead bodies, his dead body, but the angel tells them he is not here. And as soon as those words come off of his lips, you can imagine a myriad of thoughts running through the minds of these women. If, if he's not here, then where is his body? Before such a question can ever come off of their lips, the angel says, for he is risen. I, I love that little three-letter word, for. It tells us why he is not here. He is not here because he is risen. Risen? What, what, do, you, what do you mean, risen? That doesn't make any sense. You can imagine the women thinking, De dead men can't get up. It's true. But those who are alive can. The message that the angel is delivering to these women is astounding, and it's simply this. Jesus is alive. The one whom you are seeking, the one who was crucified and put to death, is now alive. You can just imagine the confusion that these women feel. This news, it, it's altogether surprising for the women. But it shouldn't be. For the angel reminds them that this has taken place as he said it would. No less than three times in Matthew's gospel did Jesus openly teach his disciples that he would rise again from the dead. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read, For from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then in Matthew chapter 20, Verses 18 to 19, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. It happened just as Jesus said. And the angel even shows them the empty tomb. He says, Come, come see, see the place where he lay. He invites them to investigate for themselves the truth of what he is saying. They are permitted to see for themselves that Jesus is not there. That he has been raised just as he said. Given that he is not there, that it's no use for them to be there, especially with their burial spices. So the angel tells them to go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Now, if you're here this morning... And you're not a believer or follower of Jesus. It is my hope that you grasp what has taken place in Jesus' resurrection. I hope that you grasp why there is a profound need for a resurrection. You see, when God first created the world, He set man and woman, the first man and the first woman, in a beautiful garden. They were to love and serve God and have a glorious relationship with Him. God gave man one rule. He said that they could not eat, uh, that they could eat of every tree in the garden except for one. There was one tree that they were not to eat of. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God promised the couple that they would have life if they obeyed his command. But should they disobey his command, that couple, that should they eat the fruit of that forbidden tree, then they would surely die. Sadly, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They sinned against God. They ate of the, the fruit of the forbidden tree. And sin, therefore, came into the world through Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, death spread to him and to all mankind, just as God had promised. Shortly after Adam's sin, God promised to send a redeemer to rescue man from the curse of sin and death. Mankind needed a Redeemer who would not die, but who would lead them to everlasting life. Jesus is that Redeemer. In Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true human body and soul. And at the right time, He began His ministry on earth. And when He did, for three and a half years, He traveled around, performed miracles, taught and cared for His disciples. He lived a sinless life. According to the scriptures, he was the second Adam. That's a name and title he's given. But he was radically different from the first Adam. He was without sin. He did everything, everything he did in obedience to the Father. Then Jesus was put to death on the cross. And the writers of the New Testament shockingly tell us that this was God's plan. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And from an earthly perspective, an innocent man had died a criminal's death. From a heavenly perspective, Jesus was bearing in his body on the cross the punishment due to sinners like you 
and me. He was suffering the wages of sin. The the debt that was due them. The cost that was due them. He was suffering the wages of sin, which is death. And just as God had promised Adam in the garden. It was through Jesus' death that God planned to put an end to death for His people. The message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. That after His death and lying dead in the grave for three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, God raised Jesus from the dead early on Sunday morning. God raised Him body and soul never to die again. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer or follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to believe this good news that I have proclaimed. That Jesus came to reverse the curse of Adam. That He came to conquer death. Believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again from the grave so that you might be set free from the bondage of sin and death. Believe in the work of Jesus Christ so that you might escape the eternal death, the eternal punishment that we deserve because of our sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and trust in Him, to turn from your sins, then please do find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe talk with your Christian friend or family member that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than what Jesus accomplished in His death and resurrection. And if you're still skeptical that Jesus actually got up from the grave, then keep listening. As along the way, I hope to offer for just a few reasons why Jesus' resurrection is actually the only viable answer to the empty tomb. God's go and tell for the angel was for him to go and tell the women that Jesus was not there, that he was alive, just as he said. Let's turn now and consider our second point, our next point. The women's go and tell. As we do, read Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 to 10 with me. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Well, these women quickly did as they were told. They ran as they left the tomb to go and tell the disciples that Jesus was not there, that he had risen just as he said. And notice their emotions there in verse 8. They were filled with fear and great joy. Mark's gospel says that they were astonished and afraid. Those are authentic reactions, understandable, relatable human reactions to the news of Jesus' resurrection. But, mid fear and joy-filled stride, Jesus met them. He appeared to them. Greetings, he said. One believer pointed out that these women, that they had been last at the cross, and first at the tomb, and first to see our risen Lord. And notice what these women do. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Could there be a more appropriate response to encountering the risen Christ? 
He doesn't refuse their worship. He doesn't rebuke them. No, he receives their worship because he is entitled to it. Because he is God in the flesh. He is God and king. Think about it. People bow at the feet of monarchs. And what are these women doing? They bow down. They bow down before their king. And here Matthew is telling us through the actions of these women that Jesus is God and king who is to be worshipped. And yet there's more. These women took hold of Jesus. They grabbed his feet. They grabbed hold of him. He was alive and they could feel him with their hands. They could feel him. They could put their hands on his human feet. He was physically raised from the dead. They weren't grasping at a vision. They were holding the feet of the risen Lord. Feet that had walked in perfect righteousness. Feet that got on the road to Jerusalem to go there and die for the sins of his people. Feet that had been nailed to the cross for them and their sins. Feet that had walked out of that stone sealed tomb. They worshiped Jesus at his feet as God and King. Now, many people are skeptical of Jesus' resurrection. Some have even endeavored to develop alternate explanations of the empty tomb. One of those explanations is that these women went to the wrong tomb. Now that explanation, I think, fails to address several factors. First, these women saw where Jesus was buried. Secondly, they were unmistakably greeted by an angel who showed them Jesus' empty tomb. But let's not forget the most formidable piece of evidence of all. They saw Jesus after his resurrection. They held his feet and worshipped our God and King. And Jesus is such a good Lord and compassionate King. He knows that these precious women are afraid. He knows that they are afraid and he comforts them. He says to them, do not be afraid. Wouldn't that be hard to do in that moment? I think it would. Jesus, he reaffirms and reassigns these women to their mission. According to verse 10, they are to go and tell the disciples, my brothers as Jesus calls them, to go to Galilee, for he will meet them there. Now for a moment, I want to speak to the, the women of, of our congregation. Sometimes I, I wonder whether or not uh, women feel as though Jesus understands them. He was, after all, a man. And uh, some men are sometimes less than sympathetic and understanding, to put it generously. Um, so ladies, I can understand that if to some degree uh, you wonder if Jesus understands you. I can understand if, if to some degree you project your experience and interaction with men upon Jesus. I can understand why you might do that. But I would encourage you not to do that. Jesus is unlike any other man who has ever walked this earth. He shows every man what it means to be a man. And he shows perfect sympathy and understanding to every woman he encountered. We see a glimpse of that here as he seeks to calm the fears of these women. Sisters, Jesus knows when you are afraid. He understands you and he loves you. All men want to be worshipped. But the reality is that Jesus is the only man you should worship. So go and tell 
Go and tell others that he has been raised. Tell them that he reigns and tell them that he redeems. Children, this goes for you too. I wonder if sometimes you feel misunderstood. Misunderstood by your peers and parents and teachers, maybe even your friends. Do you wonder if Jesus can understand what life is like for you? Jesus does understand. He is a sympathetic Savior. He lived on this earth as a child. As a young adult, he was a teenager. He was even an adult. And he can understand your experience. He knows your heart, your thoughts, and your fears. He understands them. And you can trust him. Let's turn now and consider our third point. The guards go and tell. And as we do, read Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15 with me. Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it, this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In these verses, Matthew tells us that while the women were going and telling the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead, the guards were instructed to go and tell others something else, that Jesus' body had been stolen. Now, we don't know exactly how many guards were at Jesus' tomb, and if you want my hypothesis of what number there might be there, I'd be happy to give it to you at the door after the service, but we don't know exactly how many guarded Jesus' tomb, but... Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And what had taken place? The earth shook. An angel descended from heaven, rolled the stone away. Jesus was raised and the tomb was left empty. This does not sit well with the chief priests. They had been the enemies of Jesus. They spent time, money, and social capital to put him into that tomb. What is more, they had called upon Pilate to place a guard at that tomb and sealed it for good measure. The chief priests, they come up with an alternate story to tell. That the disciples stole his body while they were asleep. They even gave the soldiers a significant sum of money and promised to satisfy Pilate should they get into trouble. The end of verse 15 makes clear that they did in fact go and tell others this story. Why are these verses here in Matthew's Gospel? Because the reality of the resurrection is not something that was easily believed. And because there really was a competing story being told in and around Jerusalem. And I think that this speaks to the authenticity and honesty of Matthew's gospel. Frankly, if you are trying to make up a religion, you don't include the fact that there are detractors at the very epicenter where your religion began. If you're trying to make up a religion, you wouldn't include a story about women who were going to the tomb to finish preparing the dead body of your religion's founder. Instead, if you were making the story up, you actually wouldn't have women as witnesses in the first place. No offense, ladies, but the reality is, is that in a first century court of law, 
Typically, women would not be called upon to give an account of events. The culture, sadly, was suspicious of the testimony of women. So if you are making this story up and you wanted it to have credibility, you, you, you wouldn't make the first witnesses women. You'd make the first witness a man. To press the point even further, if you were making a religion up, you wouldn't say what Matthew says in verse 17. Surprising. He says that some doubted. When you are trying to get people to believe this story, you don't mention that people doubted. There is Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, appearing to His disciples and others. And what does Matthew tell us? He says that some worshipped and some doubted. Now you just don't mention that kind of thing unless, unless you are persuaded of the veracity of the story that you are telling, that Jesus was raised, and you are honestly recording history. These are real, authentic reactions that people had to the news of Jesus' resurrection. And I love how Matthew is unfazed by the actions of the guards and the chief priests. He recognizes that this is an alternate report that's going around, but he doesn't develop a PR strategy to shut the story down. He simply says effectively this, look, this, this report, this is going around. It's being spread to this day. And we continue to tell people that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. That just sounds like a person who is unafraid and confident that God's truth will prevail. It sounds like a man who is writing an honest history. Well, so far we have seen the angels go and tell, the women's go and tell, and the guards go and tell. And now we consider our fourth and final point. The disciples go and tell. Read Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20 with me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, it seems like the women have accomplished their go-and-tell mission. Both the angel and Jesus instructed the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised and that He would meet them in Galilee. What's fascinating is the disciples need to be encouraged and instructed to actually go to Galilee where because Jesus, he had made clear before his death that Galilee was where they were supposed to go after he had been raised. Uh, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 and 32. Jesus told his disciples this. He said, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Again, if you are making this story up, you don't need to instruct the disciples to go to Galilee. And that day and age, you wouldn't have them instructed by women. Instead, you would have the disciples simply recall that Jesus uh, said that he would meet them in Galilee. And they would just kind of instinctively go to Galilee because his resurrection would be a foregone conclusion. 
But the disciples themselves were real men who were really surprised by the reality of the resurrection and they needed to be told to go to Galilee because Jesus had been raised. So, they received the go and tell of the women and they made their way to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Now, for the, uh, for the Bible scholars here this morning, you will know uh, that mountains play a significant uh, place in the storyline of the Bible. Mountains are the place where God reveals Himself and His plans. The Ten Commandments, the design of the tabernacle, were revealed to Moses on a mountain. Jesus taught His disciples uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus taught His disciples uh, about what the end of the world would be like in His Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And now here, Jesus will make another revelation on a mountain in Galilee. And notice that on this mountain, Jesus receives worship. God and God alone is worthy of worship. And this worship would be blasphemous if not for the fact that Jesus is God the Son. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. And He is worthy of worship for all that He is and all that He has done on behalf of His people. Many refuse to believe that Jesus is God. And they suggest that Jesus never thought of Himself as God and that He would be horrified if people thought that about Him. But that is just not the message of the New Testament. Jesus thought of Himself in divine and human terms. As a human, He had to eat, drink, breathe, sleep, and speak. And as God, He exercised power over creation. And He received worship, and rightly so. And while Jesus' reception of worship in verse 17 communicates His divinity to us, His words in verse 18 also communicate the same. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has all authority but God? In view of the Son's vicarious life and death and victorious resurrection, the Father has given to Him all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, the Father mediates and exercises His universal authority through the Son. This once again makes clear that Jesus is the King that the opening of Matthew's Gospel makes clear. This redemptive historical advance of the Father giving the Son authority to rule and reign is quickly acted upon by Jesus. As the King of the universe, He immediately commands His disciples to go and tell the world the good news of the gospel. That the King and the Messiah that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to has come to live, die, and be raised for the salvation of sinners. Jesus commissions His disciples to go in His authority. Jesus' followers are authorized ambassadors. Authorized ambassadors who have been authoritatively commissioned to proclaim the risen Christ. Now here's something that we need to understand about ambassadors. They aren't merely private individuals who share their personal beliefs and experiences with others. They do not send themselves, but are officially commissioned and sent, as one Christian said. Ambassadors, as you know, express and communicate the authority of the king on behalf of the king. They make disciples. They make disciples by calling them to the submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus. They make disciples not just of some nations, but of all nations, because that is the extent of His authoritative rule and reign. They make disciples faith-filled followers of King Jesus. 
Which means that they, these newly made disciples, must express, display, and give evidence of their loyalty to the King. Jesus Christ has given us a sign and symbol for this loyalty and expression of faith in Him, and it's baptism. These disciples who go and make other disciples are commanded to baptize them. So what is baptism? Well, Article 14 of our church's statement of faith says this about baptism, which is just a summary of the Scripture's teaching about baptism. Article 14, Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. Christian baptism is at one and the same time a sign from God that symbolizes the work that God has done in our lives. And at the same time, It is a public profession of our submission to Christ our King. It is a declaration by God because it is a sign given by Him, from Him, that He has washed our sins away. He has cleansed us of our moral guilt and liability for our sins. Further, the institution of baptism signals that God's promises to Abraham, Moses, and David have been fulfilled. What was the promise made to Christ the Son in relation to His messianic work? We hear it in Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2 verse 8. The Father says to the Son, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Baptism is the covenant sign of our union with Christ in the fullness of His saving benefits. Baptism signals that we belong to Jesus. That whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to us through our union with Him. It is a sign that we have received the Holy Spirit. A sign of our belonging to the body. And perhaps what is most amazing is that baptism is a sign of our fellowship with the Trinity. It is a sign in which we are named. Did you notice that? We are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit. Naming in the Bible represents an expression of authority. We are not our own. We belong to our King. And He has given us His name. Baptism is God's declaration that we have fellowship with the triune God. Baptism is also a declaration that we make. When we are baptized, we are proclaiming that we believe in Christ, that He is our sovereign King, that we have been united to Him through faith, and that as a result of our union with Him, we have been cleansed from our sins because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. It is the means by which a person publicly professes faith in Christ, and is a sign given to us by God through Jesus to display and teach us and others, what has taken place in the life of a believer. It displays that we have, by God's grace, died to our sin. It displays that we are repenting of our sin and endeavoring not to pursue our sin anymore. And it means that we are endeavoring to live a new life by God's grace, a life submitting to and following King Jesus. There is unfortunately a lot of confusion today in Christianity about who is to be baptized, but I think Jesus is quite clear. Take a look there. Verse 19. 
Jesus tells us who is to be baptized. Remember, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So disciples, disciples, followers of Jesus, those who believe in him, trust in him, are to be baptized. And this also clarifies for us the fact that baptism does not save anyone. Instead, it makes plain that salvation has already taken place. Those who have been baptized as believers are responsible to live in a new way. And they're also responsible to live as part of a new community, a local church. When we read the book of Acts, we see that new Christians were baptized and they were added to the number of the local church. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And remember that this is after Peter has preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those who received his word were baptized. It means they believed. Those who received God's word, they believed. They were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls to their number. Those who believed in Jesus Christ were baptized, became members of a local body of believers. This is how the go and tell commission of Jesus moves forward into all the world. This is how disciples of all nations are made. Disciples, they go and tell the good news about King Jesus and more disciples are made, which means that more ambassadors are commissioned to go and tell and teach others about Jesus and all that He has commanded. Local embassies, also known as churches, are formed all over the globe. And while Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, it is expressed in this world through embassies, local churches, where ambassadors proclaim that their citizenship is in heaven. No wonder the Apostle Peter called Christians strangers and aliens. Our homeland is in heaven. Jesus' great commission is accomplished by going and telling. And Jesus enjoins upon us this great commission. Jesus commands us to teach others to observe all that he has commanded. We live in a world that does not like to be taught or told to observe anything. As fallen human beings, we instinctively push back against authority. But what we need to call our friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, and fellow church members to is the total, all-encompassing authority of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him, and all of His commands are to be obeyed. And to resist what He has commanded is to rebel against the commander and chief of the universe. Friends, Brothers and sisters, have we submitted to Christ our King? Are we resisting His authority? Or are we welcoming His good and gracious rule in our hearts and lives? We are to go and tell others about Christ our King. It's what He's commanded us to do. And having invested in His disciples, His authority to proclaim Him as the risen King, we have the comfort that He is with us. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. I want us to conclude by thinking about our King's presence with us as we go and tell the world about Him. Matthew's Gospel ends with Jesus promising His disciples that He would be with them to the very end of the age. The comfort that we are to have in between the time of Christ's ascent into heaven and his descent from heaven is that he will always be with us. The Holy Spirit, 
whom the Apostle Paul called the Spirit of Christ, brings us into union with Christ. A union with which God established and joined together and which no man can separate. Jesus is God with us now and forever. Through His life, death, and resurrection, He has accomplished what He said at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is what we thought about when we began this sermon series just before Christmas. And Christmas ensured Easter. And Easter ensured that Jesus Christ would be God with us as we go to the ends of the earth and tell others about him, even to the very end of the age. So go and tell others that Jesus Christ is risen. Let's pray together.